0: You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. In this episode, I interview Abaco Lodge and Bears Lodge owner, Oliver White. Uh, We talk about everything from history of Abaco Lodge, um, how they took a science-based approach to conservation to help form the Morales National Park, uh, to some of the interesting sustainability initiatives that Abaco and Bears Lodge are are currently working on. uh, hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies. Sustainability consulting for businesses who want to save the planet. To learn more, visit EmergerStrategies.com. uh oliver why don't we start out um with you telling us a little bit about uh, how you started Abaco lodge how did you make it down there what's what was what's the story there
1: you know that's that's kind of a long story but uh, uh ultimately i started guiding when i was in college uh i started guiding in the summers working a shop while i was still an undergrad at chapel hill And when I graduated school, uh, I had always intended to go to graduate school, but I I wasn't ready. And so I kept guiding, and that's when I started a little bit of international guiding and ended up out west. And so I was really spending my summers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and my winters down in Argentina. And, uh, you know, at that stage, I really loved what I was doing but I never felt that you could make a career out of guiding. I, I always thought that I was going to have to transition to a more corporate, traditional career. And it just worked out that, you know, I met a client in, in Argentina, in Tierra del Fuego. I was guiding at Cal Toppen, uh, who offered me a job to go work for his hedge fund in New York. And that was Bill Ackman in Pershing Square. And, you know, he mailed a bunch of books to me, told me to read these books. So I guided all summer in Jacksonville, Wyoming. Read all these books, bought bill, and you know he convinced me to come to New York. So uh, I, I left the fishing industry, you know, with no intent of ever really returning. It was just it made sense at that stage of my life to to kind of move towards that corporate career that I always felt was inevitable. And I went to New York, and I was an analyst for this firm, and I was one of the first five analysts there. You know, I was the only one without an Ivy League school degree, and uh, I was way, way out of my league. Uh, I mean, I tell people it's not like being thrown in the deep end of the pool. It's like being driven offshore in a boat and, and thrown overboard and told to figure it out. And it was really a remarkable experience for me from an education standpoint of uh, kind of really building some financial skills and some business acumen, and I really counter to the people that see me and know me now, I loved my time in New York. It was a really wonderful thing to go and work with brilliant people every day and to be challenged and to do meaningful work that you would read about in the Wall Street Journal. And, uh and that that was the path that I was kind of on. And, uh Bill Ackman is an amazing individual, and I'd been there for a couple of years. And he called me in his office, and he pushed me to go to business school. Uh, you know, he said I was doing well, and to go to school and you know kind of come back and continue working and. And I stopped uh, well, kind of the, the head you know the head down focus that that job was requiring, and started writing an application to go to Ivy League business schools. Yep. And it was really it was really that process that forced me to kind of get my head out of the trenches and be a little introspective, which is my general nature. And one of the amazing things about applying to business school is it really it it helps you define your goals in life and you know who you are and where you're trying to go and why business school is applicable. And I finished my whole application and I went into Bill's office and I told him that I didn't want to go, right? And I and I just it was just an epiphany for me that you know I missed being outside and I missed the adventure and I missed the lifestyle of fishing and I wanted to get back to that. But I knew that I didn't want to just be a fishing guide and I wanted to go back into the outdoor space that I loved. And even sacrificing financial upside to go and live that lifestyle, but I, I felt that it was imperative to figure out how to be in that space and make a real living and own a real business and you know create value so that it was something sustainable that I could do for a lifetime and it wasn't just this temporary stage in my life. Yeah. and it was really that thought process that put me on the trajectory to get back to the lodge business, what I do now. And, and, and Bill's response was quite amazing. Uh, it was just like, all right, you know, if that's what you want to do, then do it. And, and now you know how to value businesses and you know all these things that you've learned these skills working here in Pershing square. So go apply that to what you want to do, come back to me and I'll be your investor. And so I was still working in New York and I was looking at every fishing business for sale not not lodges specifically just any fishing business manufacturers I mean I looked at rod companies fly companies clothing companies and you know all of them were really just terrible businesses right they were they were fun and, and, and part of The challenge in this space is it's a passion industry and there's a lot of people that are doing it for non-economic reasons. And then they sell at crazy valuations because people want to be part of them. And I looked at all this stuff and was really just disheartened because there was no opportunity that I could find. Yeah. Everything that was for sale was, you know, it was mispriced. It was crazy expensive for the actual value of the business, the intrinsic value of those businesses and what put me on the path to look for lodging or you know the lodge industry specifically was there was an ad in the Wall Street Journal and at that stage of my life I was still reading the Wall Street Journal every day and there was an ad for a fishing lodge in Alaska for sale in the Wall Street Journal so I called and and I started doing the analysis of what it would mean to buy that property. You know? And so I went, I looked at it, I did all these, ran all these figures, built a financial model. And I was like, this is actually interesting. This is a cool business. Uh, and what deterred me from the Alaska business was it's a very short season. This was a fly-out lodge, so you had an incredible amount of assets tied up in, or money tied up in airplanes and things, and you were really only open for 100 days of the year. And so if if you were 80% full, you broke even. And if you were 100% full, you were really profitable. And that wasn't the type of business I wanted, but it sparked a thought that there probably is some opportunity in another space. And so I specifically started looking in saltwater. And that led me to the Bahamas. And it was really a very calculated thought, right? Not only did I love that style of fishing, but instead of, a fishing season that lasted three months, you had one that lasted eight, nine, or 10, or possibly even year round. You also change the investment profile of most freshwater lodging, uh, lodge businesses, you know, they're going to require some type of private access and that can be achieved either through permitting, you know, that allows you permission to guide somewhere that other people are restricted or like Alaska where you have airplanes that allow you to go to places that other people don't know. In the saltwater space, if you can find the right property, you're fishing the ocean, which is public space, right? So Mm. your, your investment in theory is much smaller because you need a smaller footprint. You just need to put it in the right place. And the other thought there is, you also end up with a floor valuation. If you own something in Bristol Bay, Alaska, and the pebble mine gets built, and then there's a mining disaster and that fishery gets destroyed, your investment goes to zero. Right? It's worth nothing. Mm. Like if you can't fish there, there's no value. Whereas something in the Bahamas or the Caribbean or really any saltwater property, you own beachfront property you own waterfront property, and whether or not the fishing is good, there's only so much waterfront property in the world, and it will always be worth something, so your investment has some downside protection it will never go to zero.
0: Yeah, it's true.
1: And and that was the logic that I started looking, and then I just started looking for opportunity, and the Bahamas very quickly became my main focus, because I had spent quite a bit of time there, and I loved the place, I love the people, I love the fishing and I saw opportunity and uh, Abaco was a little bit of dumb luck, uh, but I found the right property and was able to get it at the right price. And it's a phenomenal location. I mean, we're right in the center of the Marls, which is now a national park. It wasn't when we built. Um, And Abaco as an island has kind of a perfect balance of infrastructure and logistics and still that out island feel. And it's, it's worked out remarkably well uh, as creating a very cool experience for people to come in to the Bahamas and feel what the Bahamas really is and see all the great positive things that are there and the great fishing that is there. And, um, you know, it's still a very small business, and, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's an effective business, but uh, uh, if you're really looking to generate wealth, man, this is not the industry to be in, man. It's a, it's a disproportionate amount of work uh, for the financial reward that is, is possibly there. But it is a great lifestyle, and it is a lot of fun, and it lets me do what I really am passionate about and at this stage good at.
0: Well, I think you know, yeah, and too, something you just mentioned, which you know, it's like I think people spend their entire life, you know, trying to find something like that, and I think most everyone in this industry has has found that passion, and it's now okay. Well, what do I have to do to to be able to be on a, a on, to live this lifestyle and in, in perpetuity, and so, um, but but Abaco, in particular. Um, that's pretty awesome. I didn't I thought it was a national park the Marls was when y'all bought it. So this actually came uh, w- was pretty lucky then that hey they decided they would make this a national park in front of your lodge, which is amazing.
1: Well, uh yeah, I mean that it was really made a national park because of the bone fishing. Uh, well, and that yeah, was not yeah. the case when we started, but from the very first year that I opened up, we were engaged with Bonefish Tarpon Trust, along with other lodges and other local guides, for you know doing a a very detailed bonefish study on the island about bonefish movement and, and spawning aggregations and, and a tagging and tracking and growth study and population. And, you know, we've tagged thousands and thousands of fish on Abaco now and have really good scientific data that helped make the argument of why it, it should be protected and become a national park.
0: Gotcha. So, so that, the, the, the protection came as a, sounds like a, a direct result of some of the research that was being done in um, in that area, which just so happened to be the morals is, 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 is do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. And really, uh, you
1: know, it, there were independent guides fishing the morals before I opened up, but there was no lodge on the morals, right? We were the, we were the first one at the time that we opened, there was one other lodge on the Island, uh, way on the Southern tip. And now there's a couple others that have opened since, but you know, in a lot of ways, we helped raise the profile of what the fishing is on Abaco. And, you know, we hosted the scientists for BTT over and over again uh, to help, you know, facilitate this research.
0: That's really cool. Is there, is there any um, data or, or anything that sticks out to you from, from, from that research that, that you care to, to share?
1: Yeah, there are a couple things that I find really fascinating. One is that bonefish, have a very small home range, right? They really, they live in about a square kilometer, and that's their home, and they don't really move that much. uh, Except... To spawn, and then they will make a massive migration to go to spawn. And there are very few known spawning sites. And so, in Abaco, in particular, there appears to be kind of one spot where every fish on the island goes to spawn, and these fish make a massive migration to get to that. Oh my and gosh. then they return right back home and then they stay in their little square kilometer and so it's really important as a as not only an angler but as a guide and someone who's you know benefiting economically from this to understand what that means for fishing pressure and if you go to that same flat and hit it over and over and over again you are hitting the same fish over and over and over again and it does have a detrimental impact and so it really changes the way uh guides think about putting pressure on these fisheries and the amount of boats that's appropriate and things like that. Uh, the other part that I find really interesting is how slow the bonefish in the Bahamas grow. right? And, and so the, the data really says that a six-pound bonefish in the Florida Keys, which is genetically the same fish that we have in the Bahamas, is six years old. And that same fish in the Bahamas is 16 years old. Really? So if you think about a six-pound bonefish, which is a good one but not a big one, to think that that fish is 16 years old is a crazy thing. And uh, it also lets you know how fragile these fisheries are and how important it is to take care of.
0: Them. Yeah, and and um, so that that is super interesting. I mean, 16. How how long does a bonefish live? Do you do you know that offhand? Typically, yeah, actually? you know.
1: Uh, you know, so if you take, take that same thing, I think the oldest bonefish documented was one, uh, in Abaco, which was 25 years old. The only proper way to, to age a bonefish is to, to, is from its othless, its ear bone. So you have to have some mortality. But, uh, a few years ago we had a big fish, uh, I mean, got eaten by a shark and the shark just ate its tail. And so, uh, Without just the tip of his tail, the fish was right at 10 pounds, which is a trophy bonefish. So he called the fish just over 10 pounds, and that fish was 25 years old, scientifically documented on Abaco. And I believe that's the oldest bonefish ever recorded by Bonefish and Trust. Uh, and then you take that, and another interesting kind of data point is for many, many years, the world record bonefish, not on fly, was caught on Abaco, and that fish was 17 pounds, and so, if a 10-pound bonefish is going to be 25 years old, you know how old were those 17-pounders back when back when that was still around?
0: Damn, that is super interesting. Um, I mean. 25 year i just had no idea they lived that long but that and and also the fact that there was another record bonefish on abaco so
1: um yeah absolutely and and, and that doesn't happen to necessarily be in the morals right i mean abaco is shaped like a backward sea that world record bonefish was on green turtle key which is one of the outer keys uh which is not necessarily where we fish all the time but it's certainly places that we do go out there to go target you know big fish
0: yeah all right, so we we've talked a little bit about you know sort of the the morals and, and, and the fishery um, on on Abaco and how spectacular it is. I, I will say I've, I've um, have have been there and can attest to um, how how amazing the, the fishery is. But I'm also curious to um, know more about Abaco Lodge's operations and. Um, what y'all are doing related to um, sustainability. Like I know, obviously, you're, you're kick plastic, and then we can just sort of go from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, for me, one of the things that I think is very important as an angler and an outdoorsman is I feel that if you're going to go participate in these pursuits, that you have an obligation to get back. And there's lots of ways to do that and you can donate. There's tons of great causes that do great work that would benefit greatly from from pure pure cash donations. And you can put in your time and donate your time. Uh, and you can also help just set the example. And uh, as a business, we try to do all of those things. You know, we, we do support a lot of great causes and we also kind of view our position as an influencer in the space and want to use that uh, to help show people it, how to do the right thing and uh, it's a challenge and it, it's a remarkable challenge to, to try to pull off the experience we want in somewhere as difficult as the Bahamas at large and then to do that and try to do it in a sustainable environmentally friendly way as much as possible is always something we, we try to improve and yeah. one of the lowest hanging fruits for us was to go kick plastic right I mean When you start looking at the figures of how detrimental plastic is in the oceans, which is where we're we're making our living, we just felt it was important to try to eliminate that single-use plastic to whatever degree we can. Uh, And you find out really quickly it's both incredibly challenging to get rid of uh, but also very easy to reduce your consumption very quickly. And uh, I I actually have two lodges in the Bahamas. There's Abaco Lodge, and then I, I also have Bears Lodge in South Andros. And... Kind of between those, you know, we're taking, you know, you know, 1,500, 1,600 anglers a year, and we're open for nine months of the year, and you extrapolate that out, and we were using literally 100,000 water bottles a year. Uh, you know, staff, clients, you know, it's hot, you, you need to be drinking water in the boat, and the Bahamas has no recycling for that, uh, not on the Out Islands, where we are at least. And so you literally would ship these water bottles to the island from somewhere else, and you would consume it, and then that trash would just get dumped in the landfill on the island to be there forever, and more than likely just be there till there's a big storm and all that landfill goes underwater and it ends up back in the oceans, And uh, and we just... You know, you, you know better now. You know that's a terrible thing, and uh, other people had set precedents to do this, kick plastic, and so we made a big push in the last couple of years to, to move towards being plastic-free, and at both locations now, we no longer offer any plastic bottles. So, you know, We have a great reverse osmosis UV-purified water system. We provide Yeti bottles for everybody. Uh, we have water bottle fillers at the bar. We have a water bottle filler at the back for the staff. Um, and we, we, we've made great efforts there and had a really positive feedback from the majority of our guests about doing that. And hopefully a few of those, you know, take take that away and not only appreciate our efforts, but will implement that somewhere else in their lives.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know... One, and it was everywhere i, I loved you know uh, arriving on abaco and um having a, a, a ready-to-go water bottle on the bedside table and uh refillable stations around um it's really you know to me i, I think it 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 makes it a, a a um more considerate and also a just a, a a more caring operation versus you know if you if i went to a lodge just hypothetically and you know, they're handing out plastic water bottles, I would kind of be like, what? Like, you're, you're a fishing lodge, right? Like, what? <laughs> seems, seems like we're missing the mark here, but y'all, y'all have done a really great job with that. And I know that there's, I would imagine, well, I, I don't imagine, I know that there's an economic benefit there too in terms of you're not having to spend money on a bunch of bottled water, right? I mean, that's part of the, it, it, it's doing the right thing, but it also, there is a, a business case for it which saves you money too, so... Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and for me, that was an unexpected benefit, right? I mean, the idea, uh, I, I, and, and we'll back up. And so I had Rick and merger Strategy come to Avico and do a sustainability analysis for us, right? And uh, more than anything, just to help quantify and get someone outside looking in to figure out what we could do to do a better job, right? I mean, we, we try to do the right things, and uh, you know, but there's always great... To have somebody who's a professional come and look at it and help, and one of the things that having Rick and Emergent Strategies come has really helped us realize is there is an economic benefit to doing the right thing. You know, I expected there just to be cost, right? I, you know. I, to go in and make an effort to be more environmentally friendly, I expected that to have a negative financial consequence on our business, and it was a price we were willing to pay. But I think for a lot of it, it actually can be really beneficial, and the Kick Plastic is a great example. I mean, if we're using 100,000 water bottles a year, and they're costing 20 cents, and now we're you know, not doing that, you have an initial investment in, in all the Yeti products and products, um, Filling stations and things, but uh, in the long run, it will become uh, a very beneficial uh, investment for us, and we're doing the right thing. So it's kind of a real win on, on all sides.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's the, you know, for, for for any business, I think that's a um a, a lot of people miss that point. Is, you know, sure you, and I know that y'all are doing it for the right reasons anyway, but there also is a real business case for a lot of this that um, I think on the surface, most people would just write off as being like, Oh, well, you know, we're just not going to go down that road. Um, But then they see that, Hey, well, hang on. You know, there's actually, we could actually save a lot of money uh, doing this and it's good for the environment. Like, I mean, it's just, it, it, the vast majority of cases in my experience and in the field of sustainability um, it has been more eye-opening and um, really awesome to see from working with clients as they say, wow, you know, this is to the same thing you just said is, you know, this is not just um, there's an environmental benefit to this. And obviously we want to protect the resource and protect what we love, but um, this is actually going to save us money. So <laughs> it's like <laughs> everybody wins. It always seems too good to be true, but it's a real thing. Um no,
1: and then you can reposition that money that you save there. You can then move that towards other environmental programs that maybe don't have as high of a return, and uh, and and you really can kind of double down.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, and that's the, that's the other thing too that you know I, I, I would I, I will just throw this out there since we are sort of talking about this a little bit is that you know most um, everyone who's maybe considering sustainability or, or, or is interested in that needs to understand that, you know, it's a process. It's not a flip the switch type of a deal. And, you know, you always start with things that you can control, grab some low hanging fruit and see the benefits of that. And once you realize the value that that brings to your business, you're going to want, you're going to more confidently reinvest in those types of initiatives. And, you know, we've seen, just seen that over and over and over again with tons of different businesses. Um, and I just, uh, you know, I, I have firsthand experience and, 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 know what y'all, y'all have in store for, for the future there. And it's, uh, there, th- keep your, keep your, uh, eyes and ears peeled. Cause there's some more, some more, uh, cool stuff coming from Abaco Lodge from a sustainability perspective, I can promise. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I know that, you know, talking about, uh, the, the, the plastic side of, of, of the business, um, is one thing. It, 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 do you have a stance on um, climate change and its impact on, on fisheries in general? Or, or are you seeing any impact from climate change in the Bahamas?
1: You know, it's, it's hard, right? Everything is always anecdotal and it's always over a long period of time. But one thing for certain is the weather is more erratic and it is less predictable. And I, you know, although I make my living in the Bahamas, I travel all over the world and I fish a ton. And without a doubt, man, you see the impact of climate change on fisheries. And, you know, from when I was guiding full-time 15 years ago to now, if you just look in the western United States of the predictability of what the hatches and seasons and runoff looks like, man, it, it, is, it is much harder to to nail down than what it used to be. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the snowpack is different, you know, we melts melt earlier, we're, you know, we're constantly having forest fires and water crisis. And, um, uh, I, I think to ignore that would be foolish. And, um, I, I'm not, I'm not even sure the right way to articulate that, but for somebody that both truly loves to be outside and appreciate these wild places and, and makes a living from it. I find it very scary. And, uh, as a new father, uh, it's particularly worrisome of, of what it will look like for my son when he's my age and his kids down the road. Uh, you know, whether these things I love to do are even going to be options anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the, so you know, for everyone, basically, what the what the consensus is with with climate change is, you know, it's depending on what you read. It's 97 to 99 percent of climate scientists agree that, you know, yes, there is a natural uh, change in, in weather patterns. You know, we there were there was an ice age. You know, I mean, things have gotten warmer, but what what is undeniable is the increase in levels of CO2 emissions basically since the industrial revolution or when we started burning a, a lot of fossil fuels. And the results of that are, um, as Oliver said, you know, particularly in the West, you see more, uh, less snowpack, warmer river temperatures, more stream closures, and that also has an impact on hatches and, and um, insect life. And then you have, as a result of that, wildfires. Um that's primarily in, in freshwater-type scenarios, but also um, in saltwater. And we're starting to see it a lot here in Charleston, too, is the increase in number of days that it floods when there's just a high tide. So you start to see sea level rise. Um, and then, they, you know, they're even seeing higher levels of ocean acidification, which has ripple effects through through ecosystems. So um, it is something that um, I think as, as anglers we should all be um, – concerned about but I'm also a big believer in not being uh Debbie Downer about it um I think that there's a lot of cool uh businesses out there that are um that are doing a lot of great things to help mitigate that and I also think I actually read today um that I think it's mangroves absorb 50 percent more carbon than uh than tropical forest, that's what it was, for wetland. So, you know, that's another uh, interesting point to think about. You know, I wonder what the—how <laughs> much CO2 the marls absorbs because there are a lot of mangroves there. Um, but anyway, that's, you know, that that's just my little tidbit on, on climate change there. So, Oliver, I know that um, you and I have had discussions about climate change, obviously, and, you know, what I liked um, when I did my— assessment analysis of abaco was that you know you're already doing um a lot of a lot of the things that can help uh reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that your lodge emits from energy star appliances like you know in your kitchen and um led lights and, and those types of things um can, can you elaborate a little bit more on, on on any of that
1: yeah absolutely uh you know i think one of the biggest advantages of having uh having you come down was to quantify everything and gives us a baseline and and, uh and gives us a baseline to which we can improve from and so we did lots of little things after you left on, on your suggestion uh one was you know capturing some rainwater. uh you know we were making all of our own water with reverse osmosis that obviously uses electricity all of our electricity comes from uh, diesel generators on the island. That's the case for all electricity in the out islands. You know, incredibly inefficient. So, uh, you know, we're catching rainwater now. Uh, we've gone and put in gardens and chickens so that we're actually producing some of our own produce and, and organic eggs now for all the guests, uh, which we found that people kind of enjoy participating in as much as uh, the benefit of having it right there on site.
0: What, what are some of the nonprofits that, that y'all uh, contribute to? Yeah, really, our
1: two biggest ones are are very much uh, involved with what we do, uh, and that would be Bonefish Tarpon Trust. Yeah. And then we have a really great local organization called Friends of the Environment, and uh, those are kind of our two favorite things that we work with in the Bahamas.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, And love the work that y'all do with BTT, especially the – that's pretty wild about the spawning stuff that we talked about earlier. I really had had no idea about that. But – all right, and so on. on sort of a, leaving things on a on a positive note, which um, which I like to, to try to try and uh, somewhat wrap things up on, um, is Oliver. What are what's something you wish other lodges knew um, about sustainability? That uh, if you could leave a, a message for for other lodges, it would you know what's what are some of the benefits that you saw that uh, you wish maybe some others knew that were easy.
1: I think that most people should be less intimidated, right? It's easier than you think, Mm -hmm. and it steamrolls upon itself. Once you kind of start, it's very easy to keep pushing the envelope. And I also think that most people underestimate the power of influence. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to be said to be an early adopter and a first mover and something that, for me, is so obvious. And I think that clients appreciate it, and I think that the takeaway from that is you will get more support from clients and hopefully generate a stronger relationship with them. And and, uh, I think it will just increase that word-of-mouth marketing that, for me, really is what drives our business.
0: Yeah. And 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 you mentioned that too. I mean, you, you've got nothing but positive feedback for the most part. I guess I won't say nothing but, but for the most part, like for everything you all have done with Kick Plastic, I mean, it's been all positive. I mean, and now you've got you're growing your, you know, you have your own chickens, you've got your own garden going. I mean, what, you know, what what's the downside to this? You know, I mean, it's just it it just makes all the sense in the world. And like you said, once you start, it is it just gets easier. So um, my my hats off to y'all for for everything that. Um, y'all are doing to affect positive change and, and leveraging um, your influence to, to let other people know that, you know, this is the really the responsible thing that we should all be doing. And um, I think there's a lot to be said for for you and, and for um, Abaco and Bears Lodge for, uh, for taking a leadership uh, role as, as it relates to sustainability and, and sustainable lodges. So we thank you for that.
1: No, absolutely. It's it's a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully we'll just keep getting better
0: at it. All right. So um, we have talked about uh, some environmental sustainability stuff. We've uh, covered that. I do, just before we, we jump off, um, rapid fire, uh, favorite freshwater species on fly. Ooh. Uh Tiger fish. All right. All right. Uh, Salt water. Anything on the flats.
1: Bonefish, permit, tarpon.
0: (laughs) All right. And uh, because Abaco is uh, famous for its bonefishing, although I will say, and and you know this, there's tarpon and permit opportunities as well. Um, But uh, what would be if you were – uh, stranded on a deserted island in the Bahamas, uh, what is the one bonefish fly that you would wish that you had on you?
1: Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I, I mean, Puglisi uh, spawning shrimp yep. is is the answer, and that, you could fish it for all three of those. I mean, permit, tarpon, they'll all eat it. I mean, for a commercially readily available fly, there's nothing better.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, um, Oliver, thank you very much for uh, carving some time out uh, for me today on the sustainable angler. Um, Appreciate everything that uh, Abaco and Bears Lodge are doing to push the envelope with sustainability. And um, yeah, anyone listening, I guess it's abacolodge.com and bearslodge.com. Check it out for an amazing fly fishing experience. Um, Thanks for your time, man.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. Uh, if you'd like to be notified for new episodes, uh, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud. Spotify, and Stitcher. And uh, our episodes can also be found at EmergerStrategies.com. Thanks.